If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Helen, welcome to the War Room. Hi, thank you. Okay, so you have a book out um, on a topic that's not controversial at all. I don't know why. Why would you pick such a low talked about controversial issue like uh, trans? I figured you'd, you know, if you're going to write a book, you'd pick something controversial, but this issue, no one seems to care about. So, how did you get interested in this? Well, precisely because it's controversial, of course, uh, which doesn't seem to be the way many journalists think anymore, but it used to be that you ran towards the news. So yeah. that was still my my thinking. Yeah. Well, it's good to hear that some people like to engage uh, controversial issues. It, it's it's weird. I, as a journalist, I'm curious your perspective on this. Um, you know, on this podcast, we have on right, left, whatever, all, all sorts of views, views that contradict each other and, um, and, and enjoy that. But you will see from the larger media organizations, criticisms of, you know, um, whatever we are, new media, we're doing such things. And, and and I brought this up on the show before, but I can go find the, the Dahmer, the Bundy, the Saddam Hussein interviews, that the big Putin interviews, that the big media corporations have done um, because they were trying, at least in theory, to do what you just said. Why, why is that no longer acceptable in society that we can have those conversations or only certain people can have those conversations? I guess that people have really bought into what some people call the postmodern turn, which dates from the 1960s, 70s, and started with the very reasonable observation that language is not a neutral thing that just describes a reality that's out there and does it in a neutral way without changing reality. Language does change reality and language is not neutral. And that's an important uh, insight. But you can take it too far and you can get to the point that language creates reality, that language is all there is, that reality is just what the language is. And that's been the way things have gone on campus, first in America and then the rest of the world, really over the last 20, 30 years, to the point that a lot of people think that the way that you make the world a better place is very strict control over how people speak. So if you want to say that people are um, the sex that they say they are, you say that trans women are women. I mean, that's just obviously not a, an obviously true statement. I mean, you can believe it if you want, but it's arguable. But if you argue it, you're stopping people remaking the world with their language and that that's a bad thing to do. So it's a naturally censorious way of thinking about the world. If language shapes reality, you must silence people who say the things that you don't want them to say. And then reality will be perfect and we'll all live in utopia. Another theme recently on the show is the idea of thinking about epistemology and how it impacts these ideas that we have. And so you just said, well, if you think something, therefore, you know, you can, you can be it almost. And, and, but that, that taps into this larger narrative that we've seen, especially in the U S about um, you can take a controversial issue about the elections and, you know, was the election stolen? Was there voter fraud? And so many people have very strong opinions, but they, most people have very little evidence on either side of the issue and so the epistemology of what they actually know is is not there, but they have a very, very strong belief that they're quite certain that this must be true. And, and it's really interesting to watch these conversations play out because um, while one side or the other might have an interesting point or two, they can't make the case as strongly as they assert the case. And that seems to be part of what you're tapping into with this issue. And, and so we're in, a, we're in a spot to where we've kind of lost the burden of proof, it seems. I guess people have always probably been like that in the sense that if you go back far enough, I mean, we are just apes with language. 
and we have and we're only a half a second away from living in tiny tribal groups with no organized government and in those situations it's not possible to be very knowledgeable about anything and you do have to go with expertise and also if the people in your tribe if the important people in your tribal group think something and they're wrong it's probably better to go along with them you know being right is really really overrated in a lot of situations like not in a technological society with tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people trying to get along and where we're trying to run systems that have right. you know trains planes you know pandemics etc uh, etc et but in a small group it's probably better to fit in than to be right in a lot of situations and that's the situation that we evolved in and we were shaped by that for thousands and thousands of years so people do believe what they believe largely because of who else believes it and often that's a good heuristic. I mean, I do not have time to work out from first principles the way global warming works or what we should do about Putin or <laughs> you know, how vaccines work or anything like that. I have to accept some expertise. And I suppose we've seen um, the loss of trust in experts in some ways, I think unfairly, but in a lot of ways, quite fairly. And we've also seen um, polarization increase, which means you've got like two sorts of experts and then nobody knows what they think. And as I think uh, I'm, I'm struggling with her name now, which wrote very well on um, on totalitarian regimes. And she said the point of propaganda is not that you believe a specific thing. It's mm-hmm. that you believe nothing mm-hmm. and then do nothing. Mm-hmm. So what we're watching is a situation where there's so much information, but you don't know how to judge it. Um, you can't use the heuristics you used to be able to. I mean, you know, I don't believe anyone who says that men can be women. I think it's such a stupid thing to think that if you think that, I don't believe anything else you say. But that rules out really all the the mainstream sources of authority for me now. And I am sort of feel I'm adrift, you know? Yeah. A lot of people feel like that. They feel adrift. Yeah. So let's 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 poke on that expert thing here for a second. Um when you, you know, obviously I'm not, I'm sitting, sitting around reading a lot of scientific papers. So uh, let's just be clear about that. That's not my cup of tea either, but you can see conversations. We have on a lot of experts on this podcast, um, you get to exchange ideas, hear what they think. Um, and so you take, you mentioned global warming just to kind of use that as a, as an, as an issue. You, you stop and you, you, you start asking fundamental questions, which is there are plenty of history books about um, you know climate change, that pre-industrial revolution. Uh, and then you kind of work it through. And there's a lot of questions to the first principle, like um, you know, how many measuring stations did we have in 1950? How far apart they were? And how, would that, how accurate were they? And how would that impact the measurements? And so you start, you start asking these questions, and then you get into the, the experts, and you start looking at what they're saying, and you find out that, that this group's funded by this, and this group's funded by that. And the group that's funding this is, Pro global warming and the group that's funding this is against global warming. It's like, well, it's like, well, are these people really even asking the right questions? They're a lot smarter than the average person, of course, but are they actually interested in the proper questions to answer this, or are they trying to find the result that, that the research is paid for? And so to be clear, on global warming, I think that you can talk about the, you know, just the fundamental way that scientifically it works, how the greenhouse gas affects. So I'm not actually a skeptic about global warming personally. Also, I worked for nearly 20 years at an organization where I listened to an awful lot of editorial meetings in which very scientifically qualified people talked about the evidence. But I can totally agree with you that this is how it feels and how it looks. You know, people people are giving what they think is the best evidence they can. 
somebody then chips away at something that's maybe a decent question, but they feel it's a bit marginal. So they add hominem and criticize yes. that person and say, you know, I look at the, look who you're funded by and you're an idiot. And then that person responds in an ad hominem way too and says, who are they funding? And we've seen this play out on social media that there are, you know, endless spats that just turn off ordinary people. I don't have an answer to this, by the way, because I don't think we can just say this group from on high speaks ex cathedra and it's the group that understands how global warming works and anyone who disagrees must be silent because that's what we've seen with gender. That's literally what we've seen. And that doesn't work either. I think we may just not actually be very well suited to our information overload at the moment. And maybe we'll all have to get better information absorbing and consuming patterns and we'll have to think about how the internet works and about how social media in particular works because we are not doing well at the moment yeah well, well what you touched on there which is where i was going which is the the the, the, the climate scientists the the experts on the issue that they are funded by different groups but also if either side asks an interesting question you don't get a good response to that question you get the ad hominem attacks and so you so then you you kind of get lost in the weeds like well there are good questions to be asked you know, about going back to epistemology, what do we actually know versus what we think we know? Those are good. There's good questions to be asked from both sides um, that could push the conversation and help the average person, but we don't get to add that, uh, ask those questions. And so, um, but I think sometimes that- we do. I mean, sometimes questions are asked, and, you know, if you look, actually those questions have been answered, but then people just ask them again. And they ask them again and again, because I do think there are plenty of people who are not seriously asking questions. They're, you know, they've come to the conclusion they want and they're just asking what are, you know, I'm just asking type questions, sea lining, as they call it on social media. So there's all of that there. And I mean, when you think of an ordinary person who's trying to earn their living, look after their family, you know, just keep going. There's a million things they're supposed to know about. There's simply no way of searching through on all the important issues you're meant to understand. And so people just think to themselves, sorry i can't i don't know it's all the same they're all they're all liars they and that radical cynicism is i think the, almost the worst outcome and mm-hmm. there's a lot more of that than there used to be mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well if you take it to the the trans issue that you want to discuss that the, the books about that we're going to discuss today when you look at that do you find that the experts in those those fields on either side of the issue are doing Real science, if you want to call it that, um, right. answering the real questions. Yeah, um, yeah. Do you find that to be true? No, not at all. I mean, it's it's not like well, any. So this, the, the only the only pushback I would say is then is then the problem becomes if we can agree that that's not happening in that field. I'm not a scientist. Um, whether it's cancer research, whatever it yeah. is, how can then you evaluate that the other scientists and other experts are actually doing? It? So something that mean you can can well, well, I, I, no, no. I, I mean, I can answer that straight away, which is that I've now been an expert um, correspondent on about five different topics, and this is completely different than any of them. So the reason that I started to write it was that when I started to ask the same sort of questions when I moved out to Brazil, when I started covering education, when I became finance editor, you know, and I wrote about a million different topics. As a journalist, you go in and you ask good faith questions of a range of people. And when I did this with this one, I got told that I was a Nazi, that people wouldn't talk to me, that if I was, who else was I talking to? And if I was talking to those people, they wouldn't talk to me and so on. It was different than everything else. And that has been my consistent experience of writing about this topic for the past four years. Nothing else is handled like this at all. 
And then the second thing about it is that if you want to go against the narrative on something like global warming or cancer, they are genuinely, genuinely complicated. Yeah. You have to know genuine science. We do not need genuine science to understand that there are two sexes. <laughs> we knew that right. before we, you know, when we, right. when we started to speak, we knew that before we started to speak, other animals know that there are two sexes. <laughs> so it's it just, you know, it's completely asymmetric. There's one side saying sex isn't real, sex is a spectrum, sex can be overridden, it's mm-hmm. more complicated. And there's the other same side saying, what the hell? Mm-hmm. You know, that's just not like global warming. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Think about also we had on uh Joanna Moncrief, um, in her position is that serotonin is not linked to depression um, right okay and so but, but, you know you and i can't answer that without finding out what is serotonin how do you yeah yeah it? of course we can but we can yeah. answer men can't be women without finding anything out we know that sure yeah yeah so the only thing the only, the only point i'm making is one of the questions that one of the things that stunned me from at least if she's right is she said you can't actually measure how much serotonin is in the brain they're looking at the enzyme breakdown rate just, and trying to reverse engineer what they think it is right and they did that in the 1960s well, again, uh, I mean, that, that's that hard. And so you have from the 60s till today, people arguing for that position. And it's quite, cl- it should be quite clear that, that, that that's a tenuous position at best. If you can't measure the actual amount of something and then to link it to something and then to have a whole industry to potentially medicate people around something. So that's, that's an, so yeah, I don't need to be a, an, an expert scientist. I can't, but I think there are plenty of questions about how valid the research actually is by these people versus what they're what they're being paid to do how they're doing and so i'm sure there's plenty of scientists or whatever people whatever you call them that that thought that that was the right way to do it but it's fair if she's right about the how you you measure it to go yeah i'm not sure this is ever accurate and so um the outsider does have that ability to kind of look at it go i don't know the answer here but but this this does seem shaky and to your point about uh, the trans thing, which is obvious to me and you, to me, the, the serotonin question is just as obvious, right? I can't, I can't say for sure uh, the answer, but, but I should be able to go, if you can't measure it, how can you then prove that you could understand the level and then medicate someone based upon that? And yeah, I, so I, I can't answers... answer with the serotonin one because I've never heard of it before, but I can give examples from medical history. I mean, people, you know, the guy who invented the lobotomy won a Nobel prize for it. Sure. So, you know, we know from the history of, in particular, medical science and in particular um, for mental health, that people get themselves right down, you know, satanic panic. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. We do well that, that is simply false and entire industries built on them and entire ex- explications for things that are just false. Uh, so we know that this happens. And I think, you know, my argument, one of my arguments is that we're doing that again with transgender yeah. children. OK, so let's let's talk about the, the, the trans thing, because you said. Um, it's obvious to me and you, and I would agree, but there are people it's not obvious to, or they claim it's not obvious to them. Um, I think so, it is obvious to them, but they yeah. are trying to change the subject and claiming that they aren't changing the subject. So, how, how so? Well, for example, there's a journalist here in the UK called Owen Jones, who is one of the, you know, really particularly misogynistic men who likes yeah. to describe women like me as dinosaurs and, you know, that we're on the wrong side of history and so on. And he's somebody who would say that trans women are women. Now, he's a gay man, right? So Mm. if trans men are men, then his target, his dating group, his target dating group is mixed sex. It includes male people and female people, anyone who identifies as a man. Mm -hmm. Now, I think he has a long-term boyfriend, so I'm not asking him to prove this by sleeping with a woman who identifies as a man. But he (laughs) is talking about finding a surrogate. 
Uh, I don't know that he personally wants to, but he's had some public conversations yeah. with other gay men about who mm. they would approach to be mm. a surrogate. And they say things like, we need to find ourselves a broody lesbian. Mm-hmm. But according to them, lesbians can be a by the sex. Right. A lesbian can be a man or right. a woman, by your, right. your by, by my language. Sure. So, of course, they don't need to find a broody lesbian. What they need to find is a gay man with a uterus, because then they can have gay penis and vagina sex with this man. Mm-hmm. It's gay sex. That man gets pregnant. That man has a baby. Mm-hmm. It's gay. You know, it's within their orientation. But they never talk like that. They only talk like that when it's somebody else. They yeah. only say that lesbians are bigots if they don't include trans women in lesbian-only spaces. Women like me are bigots if we say things like, you know, men can't be women. But when they want something, for example, a surrogate or a sexual partner, they know very well who they're talking about. And they use the reality-based words like lesbian, like woman. They don't say, you know, uterus haver or vagina haver or penis owner or anything like that. So I don't think they really believe it. Not in the not in the way that, you know, when your money's on the table, when it's your life is on the table, they don't believe it. Yeah. It's a linguistic trick that they are involved in for virtue signaling reasons largely. Yeah. So so I have a wife and four kids. Um what you're saying is they're not they're not gonna call me and say, hey. Ryan, we need you to have a baby for us because they understand no matter what I say about myself, no matter how I identify, they they know it's not possible. Yeah. And I mean, you could say, well, these people believe that there are, you know, male and female women or, you know, as a, so there's been a lot of scandals here recently about moving rapists into women's jails. And I saw a story about that the other day. Yeah. You're doing it all over the States, by the way, you've been doing it for years. You have hundreds, hundreds of rapists in women's jails and no one is talking about it. So yeah, so that's happening and uh, it's been happening for years, but it suddenly made the news and a bunch of the people who defended it are now trying to backtrack. It's fun watching them and they're saying things like, well, trans women are women, but they're a different sort of woman. You know, and this is just rubbish. Like, what is the different sort of women they are? They're male women. Well, we call male people men, so they're not women, you know, but they're trying to stop there only because they're under pressure. You know, two years or a year ago, these were people who were saying it was bigoted to complain about rapists being put in women's jails. They know very well what they're talking about, I think, but it doesn't affect them. I think that's an important part of it. The people who talk like this are not the people who are going to end up in jail. Mm. It's easy to say things about other people. It's easy to say other people should pay a price for your, you know, right think. Mm. And you you mentioned this term, different sort of women. I want to maybe unpack that for a second here because there is this weird debate or there was uh, in the past few years about um, before maybe the trans issue really took center centerfold, you know, how do you speak about a woman? How do you think about her? What role does she play in society? Um, how the feminist movement is going to push back into the patriarchy. And so you couldn't label a woman, you know, as um, a certain thing because you wanted her to have the ability to go out and to choose her own uh, destiny and venture, uh, if you will. Um and so there was kind of this 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 sense of which it, it seemed maybe I'll, your, your take on this it seemed as if the argument was women were kind of painted into the Betty homemaker box and we wanted that to be expanded but by expanding it we flattened it out to you can do anything which is really kind of a flattening out but from a different perspective and so when you're saying hey now um, you know a different sort of woman it's like well we're, we're trying to figure out these things and. What I don't understand about these different arguments is to say, well, you have a, a circle here, which is women, 
And inside that circle, you can have women who are homemakers, women who go to work, women who do hybrid jobs, women who have kids, women who don't have like 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 it doesn't seem to have to be we should be more I don't know if fluid's the right term, but more open to the differences and, and celebrate the different type of women. My wife's a homemaker primarily. We should celebrate that. You're a journalist. Let's celebrate that. There's no reason to have to pit them against each other. Yeah, it's strange that these things have got conflated. And I, you know, it really is strange because it, it's completely different to say there are two types of human being, man and woman. Mm. It's easy to distinguish them. It's mm. because of their bodies. It's because we're mammals. The two sexes are evolved categories. And you know what? You be you. You do what you like. I have a PhD in mathematics. I really do. That, you know, being a woman didn't stop me. Yeah. Um, but I'm still a woman. So that to me is the progressive position. I accept that there are differences on average in interests between men and women. There are certainly physical differences between men and women, but women can do what the hell they like and men can do what the hell they like. Be yourself, be anybody, dress how you like. You know, if you're gay, straight, doesn't matter, but you're still a woman or a man. That's the progressive position to me. And then there's the most regressive position possible, which is the transgender position. And that is what you do makes you the man or the woman. So if you were born female and you, you like playing in mud, hate dresses, you know, refuse to have bows in your hair, you know, a massive tomboy and run around the place climbing trees and so on. We used to just say you're a tomboy. Mm-hmm. Now they say, oh, your gender identity might be boy. Mm-hmm. And little girls like that and their parents now report quite often that other people will proactively say oh how does your child identify oh uh, does your child use he him pronouns or something and I mean that's incredibly regressive like it's even more regressive than old-fashioned sexism I mean there's a there's a phrase that some people use that I've heard that I think is really really good you know an old-fashioned sexist thinks that if you see a boy in a dress you have to take off the dress Mm -hmm. Uh, a new-fashioned sexist that's a transgender ideologue thinks that if you see a boy in a dress you're going to have to chop off his bits because he's really a girl (laughs) And feminists like me say, good on him, let him do what he likes. And so I'm I'm in the last camp, you know, that's progressive to me. Let me ask you this. How do you view the issue of consent in this topic, in this debate? Right, that's interesting because you're a libertarian. Yeah. So I certainly started from the position that people have bodily autonomy, and that would always be my starting position. I'm talking about from the age perspective. Yes, of course, of course, no, no, but I, I have things to say about adults too. Okay. Actually. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So adults have bodily autonomy would be your starting position, okay? Um, children do not have bodily autonomy. They're not old enough. It, it's a sliding scale, obviously, but sure. parents have to help them. Um, there should be things that are simply ruled out by society because otherwise they will be suggest sold to children. For example, tattoos. I don't know if it's the case in the U- US, but in the UK, you can't get a tattoo until you're over 18. Yeah, it's, it's, it's convenient. State by state, but it's probably similar. Yeah. And, you know, you don't say, oh, well, you know, it's a sliding scale. Sub 17 year olds are mature. Some 19 year olds are idiots, even though that's true. You realize that if you don't have a hard and fast rule, you're going to have tattoos suggest sold to minors and it'll slide. So you have a hard and fast rule. Mm-hmm. I would have a hard and fast rule. No gender medicine for any under 18s mm-hmm. because they're simply not mature enough. And it's not like other medicine where parents can consent for you, because in other medical situations, um, there is a clear diagnostic thing. There's a thing that you can see your child has cancer, your child has broken a bone, your child needs an X-ray because, you know, their teeth are crooked, that sort of thing. And then you can be given data as a parent that says, well, we could do this or we could do that or we could do the other. These are the side effects. These are the outcomes. This is what happens. We don't do the treatment. And so you, as the person who has the child's best interests at heart, can make that decision. 
with gender medicine, the basis of it is the child's declaration and the child is declaring something that no one can see and no one can feel. The child says, I feel like I was meant to be a boy or I feel I really am a boy or I feel like I'm non-binary. There's simply no differential diagnosis possible upon which you can base the information that a medical professional can give to a parent. So that's why I think we shouldn't do it at all for children. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons. The other reason is that this stuff is suggest sold to children. Like because it's possible, because we say to children, some boys are really girls. Your your adults could think that you were a girl when you were born, but actually you're really a boy. That plants the idea in the child's head. And that idea then gets ruminated on and that child then expresses it and it gets taken up by the medical profession and schools. But if I may, I'd like to say something about adults too. Consent isn't something, consent isn't consent if it isn't informed. That's a general principle. And the research and the information that's available on gender treatments is appalling. Like if you think there are people who lie in research papers and you haven't read gender medicine, have a look. You have never seen anything like it. And so even the adults are making their decisions on the basis of the shoddiest research I have ever, ever, ever seen. And I have been writing technical journalism for 20 years on different subjects. <laughs> so I don't think anyone in the current state of play is capable of consent. I'm not saying I'd ban it. I'm saying, you know, consent isn't just a matter of adults saying that's what I want. Consent is adults saying, this is how I feel. This is what I think is wrong. What are my outcomes? What are my results, the results likely to be? What am I likely to feel like in 10 years if I do that? Will my life be shorter? Am I going to have medical complications from this? How's the medical, what's right. the complication right from the surgery? We don't know any of that. Yeah. And so like a good example here might be, um, I, I believe that um, new cancer research drugs that are, you know, we're not sure they're going to work or not. Um, but insert period of time here, if they go through and they explain the research, the the known side effects, and they're very transparent about what this, what this, what this can do, you know, you're stage four, you're going to die, but here you can do this. As long as they're not being fraudulent in the research, then you should be able, in my opinion, to, to consent to something like that. If they're being fraudulent in the research, then obviously that's a, so you might still die, but they were committing fraud by convincing you. Uh, exactly. So like, exactly. Yeah, and so it's not like part of what you're you're saying here is that I don't know if you're, you're accusing him of fraud or not, but it's it's not the research here is not. Dependable. I would say it's mis misselling rather than fraud. Okay. And if you come across this expression, informed consent uh, in gender clinics, yeah. it means exactly the opposite of what it sounds like. So informed consent is meant to mean we have given you all the information, and you say, "Yep, I've heard all of that. I still want to go ahead." But the way it's done in gender clinics is they just say, give you a whole load of caveats and say, nobody knows, nobody knows, nobody knows, nobody knows. And you sign and then you've got rid of all liability. You you hold all the li liability. So and this is being done with children. This is being done, you know, by very undertrained medics, you know, nurse assistants and so on in places like Planned Parenthood, in specialist gender clinics, people cross state lines to go to places where the law is more permissive. Yeah. You know, I've talked to just numerous people who as minors or as just turning 18 went on their own to clinics where they just basically ticked, you know, a hundred boxes saying that they had been informed of a million different possible side effects, including suicide. Mm -hmm. And then they got given their testosterone there and then in the clinic mm -hmm. or their estrogen and sent off with it. And this has been called informed consent when it's actually misinformed consent. Mm -hmm. This is not done outside America. This is not standard anywhere else in the world. You simply could not do that here. Yeah. 
And so I wrote down a list of things um, that you can't do until you're 18, in most states at least. Fight a war. Buy cigarettes. Now, you can drive at 16 in most states, I think, uh, 16, 17. Um, Drink, obviously, alcohol is usually 21. Uh, And work is 16 to 17, depending on. You could maybe do 15. But you you, you kind of take that list there. No fighting war. Um, that is probably the highest risk that you might have. Of course, driving is quite risky, but um, these are these are things that we say. Even if you said driving, where there's forty thousand deaths a year in the U.S. by that, um, we're not trusting a thirteen-year-old to be able to think through all of what's going to happen and then go put our lives and their lives at risk on the road. It's just it's just not a wise decision. You might argue sixteen is too young too, but that's just the, the law. We're saying at 18, at that point, you're mature enough to go and to carry a gun and determine who's a good guy, who's a bad guy, and go kill them on the field of battle. Um, these consequences, I suspect, from these um, testosterone changes um, will be mainly lifelong, I'm guessing. Um, yes, absolutely. So, yeah. And so yeah. you're saying you can do that before you can do all of these other things, which we've historically viewed is very precious rights that you have and but they're, they come with a great deal of responsibility that you might not only harm yourself you might harm others in the process it's, i think it's possibly because you're a libertarian that you add that harm others which most people forget so that's great you know because i mean even with getting a tattoo it's yourself you harm like other people may not like the look of it but frankly they can just you know look away um, people forget that when people are reclassified as members of the sex that they are not members of that has impacts on everybody else. Mm. So we used to segregate the sexes much, much more than we do now in the sense like women, women couldn't go into certain professions or they couldn't go to university or we couldn't vote. And, you know, a man couldn't wear a dress. Lots of states had cross-dressing laws that explicitly forbade men from wearing women's clothes in public. Um, but we've got rid of all of those unwarranted and unjustifiable restrictions on people on the basis of sex. And the ones we're left with are the justified ones. We're left with single sex toilets, changing rooms, rape crisis centres, domestic violence refuges, dormitories, prisons and sport. And if one single person insists that they're a member of the opposite sex and uses any of those facilities, they turn it into a mixed sex facility. And that's not just something that's their uh, experience. It's everybody else's experience, too. And that is never, ever, ever talked about properly. Everybody else has rights too. I mean, it's the catchphrase I find myself saying more and more. Other people have rights. So you say your child has a special gender identity. Your little boy is really a girl. It's your right to call that child she. It's your right to go to the school and insist that this little girl is registered as a girl, called a girl, use the girl's toilets, whatever. Everybody else in that school has rights too. And those rights include, and have included for decades, the right to be only with people of their sex in certain vulnerable situations. And that right is now being destroyed and it's being destroyed on linguistic grounds. We're not saying the boys are being let into the girls or the girls into the boys. We're just calling them boys or girls the wrong thing and letting mm. them in anyway, and then telling anyone who objects that they're a bigot. Go back to something you said a second ago about the impact of stuff. I'm curious your thoughts on something like Instagram. Okay. And so, or social media in general, it is it is a tool that is new, obviously, in the, in the human history. Um, and, and so you, you take this trends idea and you're saying, hey, th- that we're kind of running with this. Um, no, there's no checks. This is kind of off the rails. But 
don't we see this in other forms of society where you might have something like Instagram or TikTok where you, we, we are encouraging people to post certain types of behavior, certain types of pictures um, without really understanding the long-term impacts of what that might be as well? Absolutely. None of this could have happened without social media. There are several things that were required for this to happen, and social media is absolutely definitely one of them. I mean, partly it's because ideas spread much faster than they do. So from I used to. From my book, I read a lot of history of medicine and in particular history of psychosomatic medicine, medicine, you know, for, for, for things that are that start in your mind. This doesn't mean they're not real. Like people sometimes think if you say something psychosomatic, it's not real. It definitely can be. And it can have physical symptoms as well. But different societies have different psychosomatic illnesses and different clusters of symptoms. And that's because your societal narratives, your medical profession in that country, your authorities in that country see things a bit differently. And so if you feel awful, you shape your symptoms according to what's acceptable or understood in your society. You express your misery in culturally sanctioned ways. Now, we have, you know, like there was, a, there was a very good book I read that was written just at the end of the 1990s on this. And it talked about how the medical profession shapes psychosomatic in, uh, illness. And it said that newspapers have a big part in it, too. And that book was written before social media came along. Social media now far faster and far more globally than anything ever before is shaping psychosomatic illnesses. So you may have seen things about TikTok and um, people spreading uh, these things about having alts like alters, uh, having multiple personalities and switching between them. Or there's a particular new um, uh, mental illness, basically, which is ticking in a particular way. And that's being spread on TikTok as well. So young, impressionable people see these things and, you know, maybe they're unhappy, maybe they're being bullied, maybe they don't feel special enough. Maybe the pandemic was very stressful for them, whatever. They see this and it, it without them intending to do this, they see that and it's a way to express their misery. Mm-hmm. So absolutely social media has spread the notion that sex isn't real, gender identity is real. You should look inside yourself, examine your feelings in an almost religious way, a quasi-religious, neo-religion way. And then you express that gender identity on social media again, and other people will give you plaudits for doing that because now you're special. And then all of this has been happening over the last decade or so without grown-ups. So I don't know if um, the book, The um, Lord of the Flies, is a commonly read book in the US. I've but read it's a bunch. Great. Yeah. Right. So it's read here a lot because it's on school curriculum. Mm. Uh, so but, you know, the point is the kids land and they they land on this island and um, there are no adults. Mm-hmm. And you watch what happens when children like teenage young, young teenage boys run a society without any adults. I really think that Tumblr, you know, in the mid in the, the mid 2010s and now TikTok and maybe you know to some extent Instagram, but mostly Tumblr and TikTok, they're like the Lord of the Flies. They're where mm. kids bring each other up without adults and you, what you see is crazes and um, monstering, uh, things moving very fast and changing very fast. Children are very, very suggestible and, uh, you know, quite prone to believing idiotic things, actually. I mean, even compared with adults, and we believe idiotic things, too. Sure. So, yeah, absolutely. The, the Internet and the social media has been completely essential to this, to a contagion and to a very fast mutating contagion as well. The, the other thing to that is social media. um exposes you to things that that were historically covered up like you you didn't know like atrocities or whatnot but in doing so if you're trying to be a you know um, um, conscious conscious observer you realize that there are certain videos that will pop up on social media and if you just pause 
and watch that video, you can get outraged or emotional, whatever, quite quickly. And then when you go, what happened two seconds before the video? You go, well, I don't know. Yes, yes, the short attention span. And and so it's, it's, or you might see a situation um, that you've never seen before. And, And so you're trying to put your worldview and how you understand the world works and how people are reacting inside of this environment, but you have no... I'm not not trying to say that you can't watch something like that and have an opinion, but I'm saying that you might say, well, they did this and I can't believe that. And that's like, well, true, but how much experience do we have observing people in these situations? Yeah, it's a very context-free, it's a totally context-free environment. Things are flicking by you, random different things, like it's a cat, it's a torture victim, it's a sad story about a suicide, it's a, you know... 10 ways to tell if your boyfriend loves you. Like they just, you know, all of them just after each other and none of them making any sense. And so everything becomes more superficial. Everything is is hij- trying to hijack your emotional brain mm. rather than your slow thinking brain, because mm. that's what gets people clicks and likes and retweets oh, yeah. and ad views and revenue and all of those things. You know, we're optimizing our online environment in a way that does not suit our evolved brains and does not actually engage our best selves. Because of course we think well and badly in different situations and we're encouraging ourselves to think badly and to think emotively, superficially, um, based on appearance and sound bites rather than long-term engagement. Because mm. another thing that's been very important about the internet and the transgender craze is that it's, um, it's something that's very denialist about bodies so the idea is that your feelings about yourself and the thoughts in your head, the little the little person we all feel that we have between our eyes, uh, because basically we're an animal with brains that are a bit too big for us. That's what matters. And the body doesn't matter. And if you worked in the fields from age 10 or if you were down a coal mine or if you were somebody who was you know, bringing up nine kids without labor saving devices, you would know very well how important bodies were and <laughs> your body. But instead, now we're all sitting looking at each other on screens and mm-hmm. you know, maybe my back's a bit sore, but I'm kind of ignoring it or I take some painkillers. Like we're yeah. very divorced from our bodies. So, yeah. And then, you know, you play computer games, you're an avatar, you can switch the sex of your avatar, you can give it wings, you can kill it and say that the game is boring and you play a different game. You know, we're doing everything to feed children's thought that all that matters about you is this thing in here. And the body is just like meat Lego. So. You brought the, the ape analogy a few times. First off, can an ape be a bigot? Can a what be a bigot? Sorry, an ape. You said we're just. You, oh, yeah. you said that we're apes. Can can apes be bigots? I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, I suppose it depends what you mean by bigot. Like, I don't think they've got the moral capacity to be a bigot, but I'm sure that they're prejudiced. Well, I guess I guess what I'm trying to understand is you said that we're modified apes. I think how you said it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, how can an ape be a bigot? Is what I'm trying to understand. Right. So what I think about us is that we are basically apes, but our brains did some sort of runaway evolution. So our brain, you know, the thing that's different about humans, the same way that, you know, the elephant's trunk is different about the the elephant or the giraffe's neck is different about the giraffe. It's our brains. There's no other animal that spends 25 percent of its calories on its thinking. Um, So that's relatively recent in um, evolutionary terms, not really recent, but it's a brain that evolved in small hunter gatherer tribes. And, you know, it was clever and it allowed us to speak and it allowed us to um, kill animals or work out what were good crops or so on when we're physically very weak. And so we're a very particular kind of ape. We're an ape that has to make up for our physical deficiencies with our brains. And that's just unavoidable. That's who we are. Mm. But the things that go wrong for us 
are things that are like that. I don't think animals get depressed unless they're treated in very unnatural ways. We get depressed a lot. Um, you know, we um, we fall out with each other. We have wars. We do things that animals don't do. And they're always to do with our brains being kind of outsized. And that that happened before the modern environment, like hunter-gatherer tribes do fight. Mm. Um, so on top of that vulnerability, which is that we are weak animals with an outsized brain, we now live in an incredibly unnatural environment that is hijacking that brain to do bad things. I mean, good things too. Like, I love the modern world. I love... I love the internet. I love, you know, my comfortable home and all of those things. I don't want to go back to, you know, to to living in a prehistoric society or anything. But, you know, it's just a fact that they are things that we are not evolved to cope with. Mm. So can, that, bring, that brings me back to can an ape be a bigot? I, I feel I need to think about that question more, but I suppose I'd just more broadly say that our vulnerabilities are the vulnerabilities of a particularly weak, weak ape with a particularly large brain. And now we've put ourselves in a new environment as well. So we can't expect to see no trouble from that. Well, it ties into my next question, which is um, the argument that you hear this issue or many issues, you're on the wrong side of history. And, and, and it's, it's, it's a, that is laced with ethics and morals and morality um, in a in a futuristic judgment, um, a fortune telling almost like in two thousand years, we know how they will look back on this period of history. Well, if we know anything, we look back at a lot of history and go, "Man, they weren't very smart." <laughs> so it's 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 quite unlikely that someone today can pick exactly the right side of history for all the issues. It's more likely yeah. that they're gonna look. They're going to look back and go, oh, man, what a bunch of dunces back then. Um, yeah, it's it's a way of not having the argument. It's a way of saying you're immoral, but I'm not going to tell you why. Right. Um, and it's it's particularly said by younger people to older women in particular. Mm. So young men say that, like the, the Owen Jones guy I mentioned, he particularly likes saying this to any woman over 50. And I know some female journalists that he has personally said to, um, I don't worry about what you think because you'll be dead soon. Mm. Charmer. Mm. Uh, so... <sighs> The right side of history. I mean, this suggests that uh, there's permanent progress. And we're used to the idea of progress because technological progress has been so extreme mm. that, that I think we've 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 got seduced into the idea that progress is an uh, an inevitability, really, that it's what we've experienced and we are going to keep experiencing. And there's no denying, you know, people live much longer. We are much healthier. We've conquered a lot of diseases. You know, mm -hmm. we fed far more people than we would have thought we could feed 30 years ago. There's a load of ways in which you can say progress has been really extreme. I mean, both my own children are by IVF. I would not have had children if I was 40 years older or 40 years younger. So we're used to that progress narrative. But then you could start and look and you could say, well, you know, mental health crisis, much worse than it was. We're able to end all of humanity with the push of a button now if we want. We couldn't have done that a while ago. Um, you know, there's there's things that have got worse as well. So I, and then you could say, well, is the progress even that we've seen going to continue? Because it doesn't seem to me to be obvious that it will. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we could just be in a special period where we had just had made a great leap forward, well, so to speak. We, we definitely are in a special period. Right. Because, I mean, so my grandfather was born in 1922. He's dead now. But um, you, you, you think about 1922. I think he, he was 90 when he died. So you think about that 90 year period, what he saw there's nothing like that in human history that's ever happened. <laughs> but there's sort of a feeling that it will continue like that, that we yes. just accelerate and accelerate. Sure. But I, mean, I, I see no reason to think that. Yeah, yeah. I'm with not. you. I'm not, okay, so I, I think it will get, it will continue to progress. But at, at the same clip, would seem to be hard to keep up with because we went from never flying 
to on the moon in 60 years. Like that's yes. crazy. That's yeah, that's, absolutely crazy. That's crazy. That's, and then there's other ways, like you could think, like m- most young people now feel they can't have as many children as they want to. Right. Most young people feel they can't buy a house and that their future is going to be economically very uncertain. Like that's massively regression from 40 years ago when most young people knew that they'd be able to get married, get a house on one salary and have kids. So, you know, I mean, that's not technological progression, but it's societal regression. So the idea that somebody could say anyway that there's going to be ongoing progress, like the starting presumption of the you're on the wrong side of history is that society, you know, is going and getting better and better all the time. And people like you are trying to hold it back. I don't think it's so obvious that society is getting better and better all the time anyway. And then I just think like this, there's an expression forced teeming, which is when you put uh, incommensurate or or unsimilar ideas into the same bucket. And this idea that, um, you know, trans rights, meaning that men can say they're women and be taken as such by everybody or vice versa, that that's progress is a type of forced teaming. The narrative is this. The narrative is we had slavery and we ended slavery. We brought black people into the tent of being human. Mm -hmm. Women weren't able to vote. They were chattel owned by their husbands. We changed that. We brought women into the tent of being human. Then we got gay marriage, et cetera, et cetera. So you can fit in civil, you know, the civil rights movement in the 1960s as well. And now we've arrived at the next group, trans people, we're bringing them into the tent of being human. But this is not like the other things. Trans people have the same human rights as everybody else right now and have had always. What they don't have is the right to say, if they're a man, that they're actually a woman or a woman that they're actually a man. And that's nothing like saying women are human enough to be allowed to vote. Black people shouldn't be enslaved. Gay people love their partners the same way that straight people do, so they should be allowed to marry. It's like saying a gay man is actually a woman. That's why he should be allowed to marry. Or this woman is different than all other women, so she should count as a man, so I let her vote. It's a totally different sort of argument, but the narrative is very convincing because we've bought into progress as an inevitability. And so we say it's the next civil rights movement. That's what these people mean when they say you're on the wrong side of history. They mean that it's part of a 200 year march of civil rights movements. I don't think it's a civil rights movement and I don't think that progress is an inevitability anyway. So what would you say to someone who says, I don't know, pick 1850, 1840. Um, Back then it wasn't self-evident that this is where human history should go or will go. So you had to have a group of people who had to think for some reason, this is wrong. Um, And so they had to have a basis for that, which is some kind of morality. Um, And so today you you say, well, you have this issue and you're saying, well, I think it's wrong um, based upon um, what I see about the world. Um, And they're saying that they think it's right. This, this civil rights movement that you've identified um, it's a moral argument. And so, so it's, it, it, it can't be an evolutionary argument because that, that, that won't necessarily work. It's a moral argument. And so how then do you determine what the moral argument is and who's, who's on the right side of that issue? Because that ultimately is the question here. That's see? right. That's so much better a way to put it, isn't it, than saying right side of history, wrong side of history. You're saying there's a moral argument here. And so the moral argument for, for example, ending slavery is that black people are people too. They're human. And that to treat a human like this is unconscionable. And then, you you know, if you look back at what people said at the time, they talked about suffering, pain, human dignity, self-determination. And they said white people have those things. Why shouldn't black people now try and do the same on the transgender issue? So you look at a man, a male person 
you know, somebody who is just, you know, was registered male at birth and they were registered male at birth because they are male and they grow up male. And that person says, uh, you know, it's my human dignity to force you to say that I'm female. Mm. This argument just has has no basis to it. You have to say, oh, this male person has a feminine soul or there's some gender identity inside this male person that is actually really womanly. And therefore, they, you know, they really are a woman, even though you can see that they're not. And that's just a soul. And I'm not a religious person. I'm fine for them to believe it. I have no intention of changing my behavior based on it. I have loads of friends who believe all sorts of different things. Our friends who are Jewish, our friends who are Muslim, Catholic, Protestant, atheists like myself. And I'm fine for them to get on with their thing, but don't go imposing it on me. And that's what a, a male person insisting that I must treat them as female is doing. It's nothing like a black person saying to a white person, give me the same human dignity as you have because I am the same sort of thing that you are. I am a human being. A male person saying to a female person, you must treat me as female because I am the same sort of thing that you are female. That's just not true. So where do we go from here? Where Where is this movement heading? Because to your point earlier about the jails, um, and, and you've seen this some in the U.S. with sports. Um, and, and so, again, I think you, you made a very astute observation the people that are parroting this on some level don't have a lot to lose. <laughs> you know, they're not really being impacted. But if your do- I've got a, a boy and three girls. If my daughters were going to um, be in some kind of competition where a male is going to physically harm them, we're about to have a problem. <laughs> you know, because that, that that's not going to happen. Um, but if you're far removed, you're putting someone into a jail, you don't have to deal with it. Then sure, whatever. Um, but you are seeing the tide slowly turning. Yes. Um, on some of that. So where is this going? A and then B, how do we continue to have this conversation in a respectful manner for people who might not agree with your side of it? Because it, we don't want to be the the Twitter firing the show. We, we want to have a dialogue that 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 brings people at least to understand the sides of the argument, um, to have civilized conversation and not to be a flame throwing session every time. So I think that the movement is so divorced from reality, like the the, the fundamental, I would never have believed 10, 20 years ago that there could be a successful political movement that was based on the statement that you, you know, you can count some men as women and some women as men, and that will change nothing. I would never have believed that something like that could be so successful. And um, it's so divorced from reality that if you let it run for a while, you start to see ill effects pop up all over the place. So you start to see lesbian dating apps that are a third men. That's the case now with lesbian dating apps. And lesbians can't complain about it without getting kicked off because they're told they're transphobic. You start to see increasing numbers of men competing in women's sports. And the physical differences between men and women make that really totally unfair. You start to see rapists in women's prisons. And it turns out a lot of people have lost their moral compass and have totally overlooked the fact that this is an actual, you know, international law level human rights abuse. It's the sort of thing that countries sign up to say will never happen. You see um, children being sterilized. You see gay children being told, like children who are likely to grow up gay, who are gender nonconforming. You get them told that they must really be members of the opposite sex, which is massively homophobic. You see women denied any spaces that women need in order to play a full part in the world. And we're seeing all of that now. And I think that that affects everybody. And as it becomes better known and more common, the backlash comes. 
And I don't want a backlash because that's not good for policymaking. It's bad when movements of any sort overshoot, even if they were good, well-meaning movements. Mm. And I don't think this one is. I think it's totally harmful. But when movements overshoot and there's a backlash, you see a lot of people hurt. And the longer it goes on, the more people are hurt. And so what I want to do is to stop the... The, the overshooting that we're seeing now. So I, I sometimes think like I'm the big friend of the trans activists. I'm the person who's saying, you know, stop this before you end up, you know, with us shooting way back to gay people are bad too. And women have to wear dresses and men are only allowed to wear trousers and gender nonconformity is bad because that's what will happen if it keeps going like this. We'll see a big overshoot back to the way things were uh, and lose a lot of good things as well. And the things that will really register with people are their children. I mean, you say that's not going to happen about your children. Well, I'm telling you, I know people who would have said the same thing and it is happening. They weren't able to stop it because other people got to make the decision and their choice was to take their daughter out of the competition or to see them play against men. You can't stop it on your own. You oh, all sure. you can do is talk about it. I can, stop my, I can stop my daughter from participating. That, 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 I'm saying that, that there's, a, there's, a, there's a barrier there. Yeah, there's a problem there. So the children really wake people up. Sports wakes people up because it's so visual and because it so obviously contravenes a strong sense of fairness. And also, frankly, because men care about it. Mm. Uh, Men don't much care about women's rape crisis centres, I'm sorry to say. So saying that there are a bunch of men identifying into women's rape crisis centres and men go, you know, who cares? Uh, But you watch Leah Thomas and men can see the unfairness of it. It's also when women say um, we need to have female only domestic violence shelters a lot of men hear the women as saying you men you're rapists you men you're violent all men you're bad now we're not saying that we're just saying that basically only men rape women Mm -hmm. you know not very many men but it's only men but some men get very defensive about this and so they won't engage with it or they just don't think it's interesting whereas the sport one what you're saying is oh you men aren't you wonderful you're so much bigger and stronger than us and men are like yes we are you need you little ladies need your own sports so it feeds into men's self-regard i'm very sorry to say i am pro capital punishment for rapists i've said on the podcast before so we we can can not all (laughs) hashtag not all men okay no i know i know but, but i am with you there is something there um men men get the sports and they get that it's visual and they get that it's not fair and it doesn't feel like man bashing sure i'm sorry to say men won't engage with the things that they think are men bashing even women aren't men bashing we're just saying look come on it's men i'm with you i I do have a a legitimate question for you here um it might you might come off as kind of tongue-in-cheek but but it's something i've thought about before you've mentioned the term transphobic homophobic um now i'm from louisiana i've got a high school education i'm not a smart person but growing up phobia meant fear yeah Okay, and so when you and and, and maybe okay, at least from a rural, uh, from, from from Louisiana, at least that's what it meant was fear. It didn't mean what it seemed Hatred. to mean, yeah, in these contexts. And so, um, when you think about words and mean, so a has it always had this other connotation, and we used to talk about it, or b has it been used to suppress uh, dissent on the issue of homosexuality, trans issues, whatever issue it might be, by attaching the phobia because the phobia now is. An ambiguous term. You're transphobic. Well, what does that mean? I'm not. I'm. I'm not. I'm not afraid. I mean. So, what does that yeah, mean? Yeah. No, no, yeah. No. I absolutely. I absolutely see what you mean. I don't actually know what the history of the word homophobic is, and but it is the word that's now used, and words mean what people use them to mean. So, 
um, you know, that is the word that people use for fear and disgust of or hatred of or dislike for. But you can see the problem any... with the ambiguity of it, which is. Yeah, I don't know that it's so ambiguous with homophobic anymore just because it's become such a standard word. But transphobic now, that's massively ambiguous. Mm, mm, no, 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 no. What, what I'm saying is, is there's no, no, no. Uh, what I'm saying, when you say transphobic, homophobic, I'm not sure there's a set definition that we would agree on how to identify what makes one a homophobic, homophobic person or a transphobic person. Like there's no. Yeah, real... I, I would say, I, would say I, I see what you're saying, but I would say it's a bit different for the two of them. OK, I think there's probably more agreement on homophobic, though I wouldn't fancy writing a definition of it myself. <laughs> you know, I think that if you say, um, you know, if you use slurs like faggot or something, that's homophobic. Okay. If you wouldn't employ somebody because they're gay, that's homophobic. Sure. If you would go out gay bashing, that's homophobic. If you, you know, tell nasty jokes about people, and I'm not talking about your friends, because friends, friends banter, you know, sure. I'm talking about like really nasty material, that's homophobic. Even though, as you say, probably is any of that about fear? It's an odd word, all right. Transphobic should mean being like that about trans people, but it doesn't. It mm. means not accepting their gender identity. Yeah. That's what the lobbyists tell you transphobic means. Well, I don't accept their gender identity. I bear them no ill will. I've no problem with men. I'm married to a man. I have two sons. I love my dad. I've got five brothers. I love them too. I've no problem with men. I just don't think that men can be women. Yeah. And yet that statement is described as transphobic. But I'm not afraid of anybody. I just don't think that men can be women. So that's a really good example that you've given of a word that's an activist word that's like turning a very ordinary thing. Very few people think that men can be women. Mm. into something that's fear hatred in an undefined way that's something that could be a hate crime something you might go to jail for lose your twitter account right. you shouldn't be employed you know all of those things and all i'm saying is there are two sexes and we can't change sex yeah and i would just say i'll give you the final word here is that we should be careful to allow something like the term like a phobia or phobic attached to things because as it goes from one issue to the next you find that, that that there is no common agreement on what this means and you might say well I think for homo homophobic, I have a definition, but you wouldn't want to write one. I think that we would find that as we press this, if as future issues come up, to be X Y Z phobic um, will become broader and broader. It's harder to rein it in because we've changed the definition. And I do agree with you, though, that we do live in the world and people use words as they define them. So, so I do I do agree with you on 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 that as well. And so um, I'll give you the final word. And where should we send people to to follow more of your work? So I, I I would like people to read my book. Um, I wrote it because I think this really matters. And my motivation for writing it was uh, meeting children who had been sterilized. It's that simple. And the children who are being sterilized in the name of gender identity are disproportionately children who are going to grow up gay or who are on the autistic spectrum. There are lots of other children, too. But this issue disproportionately affects gay and autistic children. I think it's a human rights abuse on a major scale. I think it's the big medical scandal of the 21st century. And that is why I blew up my career, left one of the best jobs in journalism, uh, opened myself up to being called a Nazi every day on Twitter. And um, uh, because I, I couldn't look away once I realized that. And the book is called Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality. Um, I also work for an advocacy group called Sex Matters, which is the strapline is um, Sex Matters in Law and Everyday Life. I'm not interested in imposing behavior on people by sex where sex doesn't matter, but where sex does matter, it's sex that matters, not gender identity. Okay. And the third thing is I have sure. a website, thehelenjoyce.com, where people can find my current writing. Okay. We're going to that in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time today. I, I really enjoyed this. Thank you very much. It was a lovely conversation. Hey, you made it to the end. 
of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five-star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much.